Welcome to the next podcast from Millinery Hippo. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Millinery Info, where we welcome milliners from across the globe into your ears and studio. For this episode, we welcome Serena Lindemann onto the podcast. Serena has taught many milliners that have graduated from Kangan Institute in Melbourne, including myself. For her own work, she's based in the iconic Nicholas Building, where she creates stunning pieces for race days and develops flat pattern hats for men. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors for their support of this series. Hat Academy, Hatblocks Australia, Millinery Australia, Hatters Millinery Supplies, House of Adorn, Judith M. Millinery Supply House, Hats by Lico, Be Unique Millinery, Lifted Millinery, Louise McDonald Milliner, and The Hat Magazine. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes. That's either in your podcast app or on our website, where you can also find a gallery of images that relate to this episode. Have you been enjoying the Millinery Info series? A way to say thank you and to help us to keep bringing you this fantastic content is to become a Patreon of Millinery Info. There are three different tiers available, and the first one is as little as a coffee a month when you listen to the new episode. If you'd like to show your support, head over to patreon.com forward slash Millinery Info. I hope you enjoy this episode with Serena. in your lovely studio in the Nicholas Building today. It's lovely I to have you. Hey, It's lovely to have you well, on our podcast. Lovely, it's lovely that you came and you were um, super punctual. You were <laughs> exactly on time. So that's one of the things I know about you. Um, I think a lot of people know you. You have taught many wonderful milliners in Melbourne, but I'd love to hear about your story and how did you first become involved in millinery? Wow. That, that goes right back. Um, to the early 1990s, believe it or not. It feels like maybe a month ago. Um, I was living in London. I've been a secondary art teacher, uh, first of all up in country Victoria and then in South London. And I thought, hmm, I thought I was leaving school and I'm here, here again at school. And I thought, I'd like to investigate some creative avenue of production and I there was I can't remember the name of the 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 local adult learning outfits and there was a millinery class that I liked the look of and there was a couple of others anyway long and short I went to my first millinery class thinking, oh, you know, we've got a lot of sun in Australia and people will need hats and I, I can make them, learn how to make them and then go home to Australia and make, make hats. Well, guess what, Lauren? The first hat I made was a flat pattern hat. And I thought, okay, this is all right. And then I, did, I blocked a felt hat and I thought, I'm sure there's more to it than this. And I ended up at London College of Fashion and there was a professional development course and it was taught by a lady called Susie Hopkins. And Susie Hopkins used to work for, oh, which milliner? I can't remember. uh, Philip Somerville it was. Mm -hmm. And she was very brusque and bright and breezy and fabulously... um, of character and 
I so I latched on and I really loved it and I met some amazing people there and I did uh, I, I kept re-enrolling and, and repeating classes and there's a millinery and fabric shop in the West End of London called McCulloch and Wallace and I was in McCulloch and Wallace I don't know what I was buying but I was there and they had this notice board and this was all before all the internet and everything so connections were a bit harder to, to form or a bit less instantaneous yeah. and there was an ad there from a milliner called Edwina Ibbotson and I thought oh okay she wanted an assistant part-time yes. casual and I thought hmm maybe this is my next step so I I took some things she I had an appointment I took some things around and I can remember to this day what she said when she saw my work she said I can see that you're really enthusiastic and I thought mm, I think I can read the subtext <laughs> in that and what, what I think I, I heard was I can see you love what you're doing but you're not quite good enough anyway long and short she took me on and she said forget everything that you've learned I'll show you how I do things yeah. and I hope she'll forgive me if I describe her as something of a perfectionist and it was the best thing that could have happened to me. And I am so, so fond of her, the person, and so fond of the work that she made me do and undo and sometimes redo three times and all of the above yeah. because that perfectionism lifted me from being okay to being a bit better. And I did, I think, three th seasons with Edwina and in between times I was doing a bit of supply teaching or emergency teaching in schools just to keep make ends meet. And I did get myself a studio in North London where I was then living. And so I bought a few hat blocks and, and you know, did some millinery on my own account. And... You know, I felt like by the time that all came to an end that I was heading in the right direction. I had a bit of confidence. I kind of knew, I knew a lot of how to make Edwina Ibbotson hats and I thought, and I applied some of those skills to making some Serena Lindemann hats. And as you well know, working under the, the guidance of someone who's really strong in their design aesthetic uh, sometimes you have to create some distance to actually get it back in touch with your own mm -hmm. ideas. And so there came a time when I thought, right, I need to take the next step. Where will I do it? And I thought, maybe it's time to leave London and come back to Australia. And this building, the Nicholas yes. building, uh, there was a room that I found and I... I was homesick for London because I've been over there for seven years or so. And I just, you know, I thought, what the hell am I doing back here? I, said, <laughs> I really like it better over there. Anyway, I, I moved into this building and the reason I really warmed to being in here was because it felt like a little bit of the rabbit warren effect. Yes. But also looking out the window, I was on the south side, I could see the dome of the of Flinders Street Station yes. and to me that was emblematic of all the domes that you you know too yeah. well are in London and in some way that was a little bit of a touch 
touchstone for me of going, oh, come on, you'll settle in. And I did. Of course I settled in. And the other thing, every time I'd go down to the bay and I'd ride a bicycle or walk along the the bay, I thought, you can't get Port Phillip Bay in in, in London. And, you know, I was busy trying to find (laughs) the reasons, but that I loved... I loved my time in London. It was a really exciting decade. There was so much going on. It was so exciting. I was putting nasty little marks on, of my nose on the windows of some of the most amazing milliners I've ever encountered. And I'll name check uh, Philip Tracy and I'll name check Stephen Jones. And I admire them both to this day, but also heaps of others. And 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 I'd go to exhibitions and, you know, I really you know, really soaked up what I could there. And the long and short of it is, when I got back, I thought, right, I know what I'll do. I'll make a collection, and I think I made about a dozen pieces. And I I had a photographer next door to me, and she organised a photo shoot for me, which was lovely. The, um, the model came in, and she was this absolutely, like, I just looked at her and I thought, oh, oh, Sue, oh, I'm not sure about this. Anyway, the minute the, the makeup and the hair was yes. done, I thought, oh my God, Serena, don't judge, never judge. <laughs> she looked amazing, and we put the hats on on her head and we took the photos and um, and I thought, yeah, I'm a milliner here. I, I know what I'm doing <laughs> with this millinery life. I know how to do this hat thing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we entered her, or she entered wearing one of my hats in Fashions on the Field. And she won the Classic Hat Award, the first... Straight off the bat. Thank you. (laughs) And what that did, and and I'll admit it now because it's uh, 22 years hence, it gave me a little bit of a, a leap in respect. And I suspect if I'd done all my learning and made all my mistakes over here, people would have known me and, and perhaps placed me in a slightly yeah. different category but it was a it was a and it was a great for my confidence and I remember Janice Breen Burns in the age where she wrote at the time said that the hat by Serena Linderman um, oozed effortless chic and I just oh. oh god I wore that like a badge I even feel a bit prickly right now it's like I want to ooze effortless chic every day it's a bit like my friend uh, Dizzy Downs, when I lived in London, said, you must meet my friend Stephen Jones. He could tie a bow that would break your heart. And I oh. thought, yes, I have aspirations. That's the sort <laughs> the of bow, bow I, want. I, want to, I want to tie. That is, a, that is the bow I want to tie. I want to ooze effortless chic and I want to tie bows that will break people's heart. And so on I went. And I just quietly slogged away. And as every milliner who will ever, ever hear this, they'll know what that means. It means you're walking around the table, you're trying to come up with something new, you're throwing things over your shoulder, you're making messes and tidying them up, and you're coveting blocks that you'd like to use to make, you know, make make the most amazing hats that are in your head. And, um, yeah, all of that. And... Then, oh, some some couple of years after I I got back, I found out that there was a uh, a, a job at Kangan, as you uh, well know, and 
that they were looking for a millinery teacher and at that stage you you know and I know that millinery is so jolly seasonal that yes. I needed to earn money in between the seasons to keep body and soul together and so I went and applied for the job and I guess you know that was you know they said yes we'll have you teach part-time it was a sessional position and uh, I I've taught there with you know all sorts of wonderful people and and every 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 encounter and every year there'd be some new set of challenges and I really I think because I'm a bit stubborn and because I will put up with nonsense to a certain extent and you know people people don't set out to be tricky but sometimes they can be and I just I just do my best to accommodate that and keep them going and that includes colleagues and students although I won't name them here and so and 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 I feel like I've contributed I hope I have anyway to people's development and some people came to do millinery because they had very stressful jobs and back in the day the government would pay practically everything for people to do these courses and so I got some really interesting people, like people who were nurses and who, who, who just needed to be creative or people who were working as PAs and just wanted to do something that was about themselves for three hours a week. Um, and, or, and, also not, not, and some that really wanted to go on and be professional milliners. And, and I've had lots of rewarding thoughts about that in the past as well. And as, as you and I both know, if you went through the membership of the Millinery Association of Australia, you'd see a lot of people who a I recognise from, yeah, <laughs> from their formative years. So, um, yeah, I've, I've tried my very best to keep my professional practice running parallel to that and, and it's my source of joy, but it's also my credentialing for that teaching role. And, um, yeah, it's super, super important to be able to say, well, yes, from experience I can tell you this or that. Mm -hmm. And I won't pretend that my students haven't taught me interesting things. Like sometimes they'll ask something and I'll say, oh, how about we try to do it this way? And often I'll go, oh, I didn't know that. Sometimes it's solutions that they've found and they're brought in and they've Mm -hmm. said, and I think, oh, that's an interesting way of doing it. Let's 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 give that some more attention. And also, there's been new materials coming in, new uh, techniques, and we've had such an amazing run of interstate and international milliners coming and doing doing various short courses and and workshops and so on. And as part of my PD for my teaching, I've. Uh, I've shown up at those classes and it's really, really good value to be on the other side of the table yeah. and be a student and, and and sit at the feet of somebody and learn from from them. So I've enjoyed that side of it as well. Does that answer that question? Yes, and I have so many more <laughs> questions out of that. <laughs> I, think, I, think it, I think I just told you my whole career. I love it. No, I know yeah. it was something I was thinking about because you've, you started in London, which um, is such an interesting place to, and then to come back home. Mm. But 
um, with a new career. Mm. Um, and you would have known London millinery and the Bridges style quite well, having learnt it. When you got back to Australia and you immersed yourself in Melbourne, um, what was the difference like in the type of hats you were making? Oh, my goodness. Probably not so much difference in what I was making, but if you were to characterise the British or English style of millinery beside the Australian style, I think Australian millinery, and to this day, could be characterised with the sense of adventure, the exuberance, the um, sometimes over-the-top kind of aspect. Probably more so in the late 90s and early 2000s than today. I think Australian millinery today is is, uh, very... um, It's quite... It's leading in its own way, I think... We don't. Well, when I first came back, there was a lot of referring back to England, and it was yes. really interesting because it was just when the internet was coming, and yeah. a lot of people who had the internet didn't realise that other people did too, <laughs> and and some of them got caught out a little bit with that. But you know, that's all fair in love and war, and I think one of the things that I've really pushed in my teaching and in my hopefully in my own personal practice as well is that the best milliners in this town they don't follow they create and even to the extent that they might see somebody else making something that they thought they might and then they might shift it a little bit so that they're they're creating their own niche Um, and sure there's trends there's things that, that a lot of people do but I think you know by and large people are really um looking to their own design inspirations and going back and making making collections dare I say and that is something that really comes straight from that training in in the third year of the millinery course where you design a collection and if you look at the best of the international milliners they design collections and they'll they'll keep some themes and and drop some themes and update every year but they follow their own creative direction. They don't follow somebody else's. Some evolution so, to it as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's not you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. I mean, I look at some of the hats I've made twenty years ago, and I'm thinking, mm, if I was to make something to fit that niche, it probably wouldn't be that different. And at one stage, yeah. I used to think, oh God, that's terrible. I need to think up something new. But you know, sometimes it takes two or three years for the public to catch up with an idea and and sometimes I'll have a hat sitting on the table for a little while and then someone will come along and go I love it I want it and having learnt from Advina how did you what were some of the things that you maybe kept or the things that you consciously evolved in your own style and aesthetic from one of the things that Edwina would do is she'd build a hat from the from the ground up so she'd start with un dyed unprepared materials and she'd work from scratch she wouldn't we use like a pre-made anything not she even would, pre-dyed not well not not normally yeah. yeah she would dye she would dye her feathers she would dye if she's making a making flowers she'd dye the silk she would um she would use 
the best quality of materials. And so when the hat came together, it was sometimes very laborious. And one of the things that I don't think we can afford that luxury here in Australia so much because we do not have the type of client that would pay the money that it takes to pay for all of that. And so I have to say I have did have to streamline some of my practices. And I love dyeing stuff and I, it comes from her but it also comes from my art background. That I love, um, you know, I love that sort of sense of you start with um, a a formless mass and you, you, you bring order into that and you create something that someone, I hope, would reach for and say, yes, I can see myself wearing it. There was somewhere along the line that I realised that I was in the fashion industry and I never thought I'd be in the fashion industry. I thought it was all a bit superficial. But to be honest, I love it. I have a, I think I have a fairly healthy relationship with it. But I do really, you know, it... it I think the respect that we have for the way a designer can relate to the human body, adorn the human body is, and it's interesting that um, the NGV has got an exhibition on at the moment of uh, Alexander McQueen and there's been lots of other fashion exhibitions and it's been treated as art and I think that's really evolved you know, certainly when I was training, I, it, it, it seemed like there was a chasm between, but not yeah. so much these days. And does the um, art background that you have, does that still encroach or support what you make? Remember how I used to say, take inspiration from outside millinery? That came straight from... Um, that came straight from my art background and I think the one of the most simple formulae for coming up with ideas is to find something that you find engaging outside your practice you investigate it you experiment with it dare I say you draw and you uh, you, you manipulate and then bring that back in and it it's um it's almost like you know cutting out this and cutting out that and putting them together in ways that haven't been seen before and that that sort of comes through in I, I've spent a lot of time loving origami and uh, I found that I, I went through a stage and I think it was around about 2003 where I was doing a lot of pleating and folding and and um, you know that that was that was pure referencing back to what I just said to you about putting things together in unexpected ways. Is designing and producing a collection still part of how you practice your millinery today? Has to be, has to be. And at the moment um, it's a little bit outside what I initially was doing but at the moment I'm working on a collection of made in Melbourne pieces for men for Fashion Week. We're, and I'm working with a, um, a couple, several other um, businesses. I won't. Uh, uh, I don't know as much as I should about exactly where it's going, but uh, I'm really looking forward to producing some things that aren't mass produced, that are 
um, made, if not to order, then certainly made in the, um, you know, in in the work, in the, this workroom. Uh, I have a a, a friend of mine who's an ex-student and she used to refer to herself as the slow hat movement. Well, I'm not exactly the slow... Remember the slow food movement and the slow this and the slow that? I think think there's something to be really respected in that. It's that sort of, you know, step-by-step and building something again from the ground up. And that, that, that sort of concept comes back to me from time to time. And I know... There's a lot of disdain for pre, pre this or pre that. I do like the idea of building things from from not much. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And you won uh, in two thousand six. Got you good. hosted yeah. the Millinery Award for very the first, first time. one, and you won. I did. I did. What was it like to enter? Did you? It's gone on to become quite a renowned competition. But uh, Look, what was that first experience it's a really like? Interesting thing. It's a really interesting thing. When I did the piece that I made, I, I just re, um, refer back to that origami, that folding yes. that I was doing, and I created a, a piece that I can still find it somewhere here, and um, I, oh golly, I think it was a wasn't a terribly long lead up that I had. But I borrowed this absolutely beautiful silk satin dress from Barbara Wilson, and I did. I had a parade with, um, and my friend Christopher Horn, the dearly departed Christopher Horn, organised my parade for me, and he got me, I think, half a dozen models, and including a beautiful woman called Sylvana Lovin, and she. Every time she put anything on her head and walked out, I I couldn't stop looking at her. And I don't know what it was. It was just some kind of factor. And I just thought, well, if I'm going to put something in this award, I want her to be my model. And so I went to her agency and I hired her. She's now Silvana Philippoussis. She's married to a tennis player. Bless her. And is a very beautiful and lovely mum of two little children. And so I had Barbara Wilson's dress. I had Sylvana Lovin. I had the hat. I think I I, um, I borrowed some pearls from yes. the uh, Grey and Reed yes. in Collins Street. And I might have bought the shoes. I can't remember where the shoes came from. And I thought, well, that's my best shot. I'll put all that together and <laughs> see how she I, goes. Yes, exactly. So I took her out, and I remember walking along, just a little bit behind her, and she cut this swathe, and the people, people, well, yeah, and they were just looking at her, and I thought, mm, this is good. This is fun. This is really. Even nice. if I don't win, I'm still. It's exactly, still a good day. <laughs> exactly. And when I arrived at the the sort of area, because it was you know before we had all the different uh, manifestations of the space at the VSC, yeah. um, I remember Richard Nylon, whose opinion I value very much, yeah. just looked at me and he said, "Oh well, you've won." And I thought, "Well, you're not the judge, but we'll <laughs> see." And so they, I think they filtered it down from. I don't know how many to maybe 30 there was in that, mm-hmm. to 10. 
and my, I came into the final 10 and there might have been two filter downs mm -hmm. and I was still in and I thought, oh, this is good. And then they announced, you know how they announced the yes, third three, prize. Two. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, I've either bummed out or I haven't, you know, I've won. And I won. And it was just the most exciting feeling. And I thought, this is easy. I, I win these things. I'm really good. And um, so I, that's my ego at work there. Um, anyway, so it was, it was really exciting. And I, I kind of, um, the, the, the winning got a little bit lost because we yes. didn't get great photos. There was yeah. not a lot of great photos. And so, and you know, it's 2003, it's nearly 20, no, what did we say? Six. 2006. So it's getting to be a yeah. while ago. And so, but all of that stuff, it just gives you such a boost. And I know every single person who's won it since, I just feel so pleased for them. A little bit jealous, but mostly <laughs> pleased. And I just know that it benefits your career. It benefits the it it benefits the the um, the the way you see yourself and the way you credential yourself because it really does count. And it gives you attention and it gives you opportunities that otherwise you wouldn't have. And so I did enter there for several years afterwards. And whether they they just put a little note on my thing saying don't let her get, get she's ready <laughs> she's, she's already had it first she's one. had a go <laughs> and I think now they even have a rule that says if you've won it previously you're not to enter which I'm not totally sure that's good I know I know um Liza Steadman won yes. twice and good uh, and well done her yes and um anyway I I I, I do I, I think there's been some really great winnings one of the things that concerns me about it a little bit is that sometimes I think it veers into costume a little and it loses touch with fashion. And, you know, I say that with the greatest of caution. Yes. But I know that if everybody wants attention, you have to really ride that line. You have to ride the line between something that a woman would put on a, a real woman would put on yeah. and something that will catch the judge's attention. And so, you know, there's a lot of imagining what the judges will be thinking and what the judges will be looking for and possibly second-guessing yourself a little bit. I think it's really hard. I think it's very, very competitive. And uh, I have to say, when I stopped entering, because I did a little while ago, and I used to go and watch yes. every time. And I'd see all these really hopeful entrants. And I, I could, could genuinely say, I hope you win yes. to people. Where I, I wasn't being genuine before that. Because I'd go, <laughs> oh, I want to win. Because I'd be so, exactly, I'd be so, you know, I wouldn't relax until they'd announced. Yes. Because, you, you know, you don't enter... Um, you don't enter a competition like that. I mean, it's a, quite a big investment of time and energy yeah. and money um, without wanting to be the one that wins. And you don't make a hat that you don't think is the best. Yeah. And so, yeah, I really, I really um, understand why 
you know, why we try so hard. Because it's a bit like, I'm sure drugs are like that. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I feel fabulous. I'm so fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. But it's a, it's a, it's a high that... Um, a high that you didn't have to yeah. take in, in 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 physical ways. It's just there. And if I remember your piece correctly, it featured gorgeous sort of raffia flowers. Oh no, no, that was the one that came third. A oh, couple of years later, which is one that came first? The one that came first was a, a coral coloured spiral piece yeah. with little mustard coloured um, pleated. Uh, spiral, uh, similar technique. Yes. Um, and set on a on a on a on a sort of a. Well, it was actually a Dior beret. It yes. was a. Um, I, I um, bought. Oh, where did I get that block? Um, anyway, Boone and Lane made my first few blocks, yes. and then I started getting blocks here, and yep. I'm so pleased what we've got. Daryl at Hatbox Australia because he's um, he's just amazing. His blocks are beautiful. In fact, I've been working on one of them this morning. Anyway, long and short, um, yes, I blocked uh, that button mm. base. The the next one was more of a headband, and then I made those raffia flowers, and I made the flowers using wire work, and then uh, did, did this. It wasn't even raffia; it was a synthetic raffia so the colours were very vibrant and the the material is quite lustrous and beautiful and it was based on some fabric that I'd found in a bag it was a terrible bag but the fabric was divine and it was in the um, shop shop. shop, up at the top end of Burke Street and I hadn't even thought about this for years but it was in the the Salvation Army op shop it's no longer there um, but they had an op shop and I saw this bag and it was terrible but the fabric was amazing so I just covered this little headband yeah. base I think I've still got that one somewhere and I'd sewn all the the wide flowers on and then I thought oh you know what there's not enough flowers and I, I was, after the thing was finished I stitched a whole lot of extra flowers on <laughs> and to this day I haven't re like I, I, the stitches were showing through the lining, but I thought, ah, can't be bothered with that. They're only going to look at the outside. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but that one came third, and that was as close as I ever got to winning again after that. So that was humbling in that I thought, oh, I've got the knack with this. But yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And of course, um, you know, pride comes before the fall, doesn't it? <laughs> and when you were going to enter all your. Um, were you looking to innovate something you'd already done or did you design something specifically just for those? Well, the interesting thing about the well, the, the spiral pleating, yes. that was something that I'd been using, but I just larged it up a little bit. Yeah. And with the raffia, the raffia fabric, it was, it was a dupe, cream dupion silk and it had ra- a colourful synthetic raffia embroidery into it. And I thought... I could take that and make it three-dimensional by creating wire, little uh, trim wire frames and then weaving the raffia into the frames. And I made a bow and I made uh, a whole lot of different style of flowers, some pointy petals and some little round ones. 
and then I just I had lots of different colors and lots of di like it was quite a profusion yeah. and that one actually I think there's a photo of that one behind me that yeah there that one went on a, a beautiful model um, uh, her name here we are her name was his it was Jade Pomeroy and she um, she was a daughter of some friends of my sister uh, but she was with an agency, so I went through the agency to hire her. But um, that was the that was the piece that she was wearing. And oh, I can't remember the name of the label of the dress, but I actually bought the dress. It was I loved it. I don't even know where that is now. But um, you can see a little bit of the the yeah. base there. So that was the the thing that launched the concept of that. And I have taught that technique at a couple of millinery conventions and I've seen people use it and, yeah. and but it's quite time consuming and of course the Australian woman um, doesn't necessarily want to pay a fortune for yeah. our hats yeah. unfortunately. And we're here in your studio in the Nicholas building is this the original space you're in or have no. you shifted around the building? <laughs> oh I've been um, I started off on level five in a shared space and then uh, a friend of mine who was an artist had this room. I'm in room two on level six. And she had this room and I thought, oh, I like this room. And I loved looking out onto Swanson Street. So I moved to this one. And then for a period of time I expanded to the room next door as well. Yes. But um, eventually I had to re-contract to fit myself back into here because I'm sure, as you well know, uh, rising rents in the city have really meant that a lot of us have had to rethink our, our space requirements. And, yeah, that's a bit of a pity. I think I was in the lucky... I was in a lucky patch where there was lots of creativity in the building yes. and lots of space and the rents were manageable. So, yeah, those days are a little bit gone, sadly. And your block collection is Look, around us. Yeah. Um, so did you bring? You bought some back from London. I bought a you? few back from London, but I can't. I can't. Um, that, in fact, to be honest with them, they're, with you, they're, they're kind of a bit dated now. Um, my favourite blocks are either blocks that I've uh, I've bought from um, from uh, either vintage blocks or blocks that I bought from. Uh, Hat Blocks Australia or what, whatever that, um, over the years and also I don't know if you remember did I teach you how to make a block using desk? I think so, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, there's a bit of that action a bit as well because <laughs> I've because I, I mean because I've come from an art background yeah. I've applied some of the sculpting skills to to making shapes because I know one of the ways of creating an original piece can often start with a shape that you know that you might not be able to see in every workroom and I think that's those points of difference are really valuable yeah. and do you have customers come into your because it's very much a workspace but do you have customers come in to the space for consultation or to try pieces on how does that engagement work look um, I try and keep the place a little bit tidy for that very reason um, actually um, Yes, they do. They come. They come for uh, 
consultations here, and particularly during the spring season, but I'll, I'll get a scattering of, of wonderful clients between. I, I had a s- stunning bride, and um, it was kind of fun because she wanted a, a sort of a floppy bow yes. to go in her hair. I think you, I've, I should put yes. some of the photos up on my Instagram. Yes. And uh, the funny thing is she, she was wearing this amazing um, gown with a um, – I don't think there was any um, there was any straps on it. And mm. it was a beautifully structured gown. And I thought I was going to make it out of Gazar, which is one of my favourite – all-time favourite f- fabrics. And it didn't quite work. And I went to – uh, I went to my favourite fabric, one of my favourite fabric sh- sh- shops up the up the um, the hill to Suti, and I found the fabric, but it was exactly the. No, I didn't go to Suti that time. I went to to, um, to Tyler's in Cromorne oh, yes. Street, and he had that same fabric that the gown was made of. That the fabric has a really crisp aspect, and she wanted a really floppy bow so here am I with the steamer going trying to make it look floppy <laughs> by what happened um I so I sewed the and you and I both know that you don't tie bows in millinery you construct them yeah. and and I was really reflecting on that so much when I was putting this together and I was stitching the two loop sides yes. together so that they formed that v mm-hmm. shape so that they looked like they were just dropping down um, and they weren't just sitting up like little perky <laughs> little loops. Anyway, um, when the photos came back, I was so delighted. You know, because I, I got a lovely message from her as well. But, um, you know, I felt like I'd met the brief. I'd met the brief. Uh, actually, um, one of the things that I insist my students do and they don't take me seriously and I don't take myself seriously either, is to keep a spec sheet of everything that you put in your hat, you, all your costs and all your your um, your times, and then you work out how much it costs because you need to predict when a client comes in to order something, you need to predict what they need to pay you. Well, hello. I kind of do it some of the time, but perhaps not as well as I should. Um, I say nor as I do. Yeah, that's my <laughs> advice to any milliner, is to, including myself, is to um, to do your costings, like really stay on, on those costings because yeah. you need to not be a charity for people who are more wealthy than you are. And, you know, if someone comes to a milliner, they've got everything else they need and you need to know that and you need to not be trying to give something for a value that's lower than your your time because you will resent them if you do and you will ha- you know you'll be kicking yourself and you don't need to be kicked absolutely so you mentioned there in teaching you've been teaching hanging for a number of years how is um how you've taught or the types of things you deliver changed <laughs> oh that's interesting i changed a lot um, once upon a time, I used to be able to teach all the pe- people the same thing at the same time. I would demonstrate. I would. <laughs> I, I I often wouldn't finish the piece, but I'd demonstrate the stages yes. to the students, and then I could help um, help them progress their work. And 
these would be in classes of you know up to 15 16 people um, and you know no fewer than a dozen over the years the numbers have dropped and now I have one class where I have two stages at the same time and during the pandemic I built a lot of online resources which have only been available to my Kangan students because you there's a way that you can put things onto YouTube and we have to have the um, the the link you can't just go and search the skill it's hidden and so given that that's the intellectual property of Kangan that's all hidden and so what I would do is in class and this would be you know for whatever reason you may not have all the students in the class at the same time so you give I would give the give my phone the little amazing camera phone to one of the students and I'd say you focus on the thing that is of most interest to you so they they would look at your hands while they were working and you could get a a video describing and I'd be talking them through at the same time and then I could post that up onto YouTube and put the link into their online learning platform so when the pandemic hit we had to get everything onto online instantaneously it was the most amazing effort and you know it was the thing that we were all saying oh yes we really must do that one day oh yes because it was all ready to happen but of course what the pandemic did was it just said well if you don't do it you did that's it you've got nothing you've got you can't teach without the technology and that was one of the things that I would reflect on we were so lucky that we didn't have the pandemic before we had all the technology because we would have been so isolated I mean I I can't teach over the telephone I I could I had sound and I had vision mm-hmm. and I had the ability with my phone to make videos I had put them into YouTube everything was there all the resources were there mm-hmm. and I think you know and I know that uh, Pinterest pages were so valuable yes. and being able to say well look at the examples that I've collected and put in that Pinterest page that'll help you understand and in fact I just had a student say why do I, what, what, what's this bias brim business? What's that look like? And I was able to, to refer her to a particular photo and say, look at that one there, half made. And the, it has the advantage of the, being able to cross the headlight on the bias all mm. the way around. And uh, as you, you obviously don't have when you, you're blocking flat. And she wrote back and said, yeah, I get it. I know what I'm doing now. So, so, you know, there's so many ways I don't have to have my hand in every single thing. Although that said, now I'm really insisting that unless there's a really good reason, they come to class. Because there's no, there's nothing like watching a student in the classroom if they're not holding something properly or they're, they're, they're doing something in an awkward way or not using their thimble, um, you can say, hey, listen, if you go in the direction towards your holding hand, it's going to be so much more easy. That's life-changing, that comment, I have to say. I think of you every time I hand, so... (laughs) (laughs) Because it's something that you wouldn't have um, 
wouldn't have seen us do hold things the wrong the wrong wrong way. I know some people so differently, but yeah, you wouldn't have been able to offer that correction. No, that's improved no. so many so many so many of us. And the reality is, when people are doing things at home, having watched the video, you can't be entirely sure that they're. You know, they're doing it in the most ergonomic way. They're not doing it in a way that's going to damage them by creating, you know, cricks and snicks in their in their back or whatever. And I'm really, I'm really... One of the things about the course is that I didn't really even think about this terribly much until I started teaching safety and workplace safety and... But, you know, using the right posture and using the right equipment and the PPE... Um, the protective stuff and taking breaks and you know all of the things that I now just build in uh, into what I, I teach because you know if you're going to do this for the long haul you don't want to end up with a bad back or a um, you know re- um, repetitive injury that sort of thing so yeah safety is important very important and what's some of the key skills or wisdom that you hope that your students will take away from a class with you or a course with you? One of the things that I think is really central is, did you, I gave you a stitch menu, didn't I? I've had that thing for ages and I, I've, I've, uh, I've given a list of stitches, a little diagram of each one showing what they are and telling you where to you where they used, and I think if you feel confident that you know what stitches you're going to use to do a certain thing, um, it's really good. And so I think that that gives people the confidence that they need. But the other thing, and this is um, this is something that we've done a little bit more recently, we have a photo shoot with Richard Shaw, the photographer, and he comes in. The students hire a model. We set up, or Richard sets up his screens and gives the students a you know, semi-professional, well, a professional photo shoot for their work. And one of the units that I teach is about um, interact with the, with the fashion industry. And I make them all, or make them, listen to me, <laughs> I ask them all to make a Pinterest, uh, not Pinterest, what's it, what are we called, Instagram page and I link that to the photo shoot and so it's about I mean third year at, at Hangen for me and for, hopefully for my students is to to you know get them heading in that direction that they can um, work towards professional practice and one of the other things that I really encourage them to do because I know when you're a student you can get your legs under the table of some really good milliners and if they've got the time, and not all of them do, um, to 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 go and put themselves at the feet of you know at, at some of the other milliners in town as well. Yeah, yeah. some work experience. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, to me, it's all about the networking as well. Yeah, what's a project you're working on at the moment that you're looking forward to? Well, I kind of referred to that previously yeah. with the the men's. Um, men's collection yes. that I'm doing and I've actually even I've actually even thought well I I have a website and I I find it 
a useful thing to have because it helps me structure my my thinking and my offerings. But uh, I have I've I've always neglected the men's hats there, and so there's a space available and ready. And I'm thinking, you know, that that might be a thing that I'm working on at the moment. I now have three days a week in my studio. Last year I had less and I was um, not making the time very easily to spend time in here. So I was doing a bit more millinery in reaction to what people wanted. But now I'm doing millinery in order to lay a trail of breadcrumbs to my door. And hopefully, you know know that story, Um, hopefully... I can build new aspects to my business and pay more attention to strengthening my business this year. So that's something that I'm very much looking forward to. I I know racewear is really important and it's ever-evolving, as you well know. It's wonderful to see that um, the hats have become smaller, more elegant, um, I'd still love to see people wearing more hats on a day-to-day basis, but I'm not sure that's ever going to happen, really. (laughs) Um, But I do, you know, I love the characters and the people that I meet when I'm talking millinery. Uh, I find it's endlessly engaging. I mean, looking at the networks, and one of the things that I used to say when I was teaching is you are going to find yourself making friends for life from coming here and I would do my best to just gently attempt to to foster that sort of that sort of um, bonding in the group because I knew that you'd come to class if you knew your friends were there so I'd 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 make that an important thing and you know making hats in your studio can be quite isolating and if you if you have a, a network of friends that you know you can lend blocks you can you can feed off each other you know ask each other for feedback you can um you know if someone needs a few meters of this or that then then that's all there and and with that in mind the millinery association of australia i've 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 watched that over the years and i think that was really amazing during the during the lockdowns creating that that sort of support for each other and oh oh beg your pardon where were we? what did when david interrupted us with well, where his, were we now that's away. one of the things that i do as it happens yes. i i have a kubra I, i'm on the kubra website have been yes. forever and i replace the sweat bands and i replace the the bands oh, one of the things that I like about doing it is that I get to meet some really interesting people and the relationships that they have with their hat, like that one was, that chap was on the phone, wanted me to patch holes. Well, there's certain things you can and can't do with, with repairing hats, but, you know, to respectfully make the hat so it's still got life in it. And one of the things that I also do is I say, please, please, don't hold your hat by the point of the crown, use two hands and hold the brim and you will extend the life of your hat by several years. So, you know, I'm ever the bossy school teacher. 
Um, I think. I think we're done. We had enough fun. We've had so much fun. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me yeah, here in your no, studio. It's a real delight. And and if anybody listening is wondering why we're having such a friendly time, I know Lauren reasonably well because I taught her at Ganga. <laughs> and I can remember, I'll tell you a secret. It's a secret on you, Lauren. Um, Lauren did a hat for me, and I can't remember which one it was. And I, and in those days, we used to do graded assessments, and I used to dish out, um, you know, lots of grades, and I used to hate doing it because, you know, I want to give everyone a high distinction. <laughs> anyway, I think I might have given you a, a credit or something. <gasps> yes, exactly. You heard that sharp intake of breath. Uh, and she came up to me and she said, so, what does it take to get a distinction around here? And I, I had to explain in very great detail and justify my decision. And that was one of the things that I really respect and love about you is that you, did, you didn't just settle for, okay, you wanted it to be wonderful. And you, you've gone from strength to strength in your millinery and I've really enjoyed watching that. Oh, thank you. And it didn't do any harm that you spent a number of years working with Louise, did it? Well, that it? was all thanks to the Kangan work experience. So I wouldn't have had the chances to do what I've done without coming to that course and meeting you and having the opportunities that that course gave. Mm. Yeah. And, and, yeah, you had paid employment there for a number of years before you branched out on your own, yes, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough industry, but it's uh, it's... Yeah, the rewards are quite amazing, really. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Millinery Info with Serena. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, along with the rest of our series. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors for their support. Hatblocks Australia, The Hat Magazine, Louise McDonald Milliner, Lifted Millinery, Be Unique Millinery, Hats by Lico, Judith M. Millinery Supply House, House of Adorn, Hatters Millinery Supplies, Millinery Australia, and Hat Academy. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes. That's either in your podcast app or on our website. Would you like to hear your business name mentioned here? You could become a Patreon sponsor of Millinery Info. If you head over to patreon.com forward slash millineryinfo, you can find out about this along with the two other tiers that are a way of showing your support and to say thank you as you listen to this episode. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Millinery Info and I look forward to talking hats with you again soon.